Welcome to WMFA, a podcast where writers talk writing. I'm Courtney Ballastier, and this week I'm talking with Juan Vidal. Juan is a writer and critic for NPR, and his work has appeared in Rolling Stone, Esquire, GQ, Vibe Magazine, and elsewhere. Juan's path to writing took a unique turn. When he was in college, his hip-hop group, Ray Ma Soul, was signed to a label, so he spent several years recording and touring before returning to writing. His first book, Rap Dads, is in part about this journey. It's a memoir-cultural criticism hybrid that explores Juan's path to fatherhood as a product of the hip-hop generation and the ways that pop cultural figures balance their careers with raising children. It's forthcoming from Simon & Schuster. We cover a lot of ground in this conversation, from early morning writing schedules to the weight of being a first-generation Colombian-American writer in our current political climate. We also discuss being a creative loner who loves collaboration, using music to tap into the subconscious, and never giving up on the ideas that move you. You have to have faith that what you're saying has value, because if it has value to you, it's going to have value for somebody else. Let's start by talking about your forthcoming book, Rap Dads. How did that come about? Well, I've had this uh, idea to write um, a book about fatherhood for some time. As with a lot of books, they, it's gone through a lot of changes. Started out, at least the kernel of the idea started out as a novel. It was going to be fiction and basically just kind of my experiences just traveling and say loosely based on my experiences of traveling and being a father and these different things and kind of the, some of the experiences that I had in, in Colombia when I went to do my uh, my junior year of high school there um, in South America. But I struggled with that for some time. I kind of got about halfway through and just had to abandon it. Um, but I still kind of had the kernel of the idea uh, with me for a really long time. But then I decided that I wanted to kind of explore it just through a, the aspect of nonfiction. As I started to just develop the idea more and kind of flesh it out and just be kind of begin writing it, I started to see it take shape. And from that, yeah, I just kind of grew into kind of a full-fledged an idea, full-fledged idea. And that's kind of what became the foundation of what, what Rap Dads is, which I'm working on now. I'm really curious to know how you determined that the first project, the novel, was finished. I feel like it can be really hard to sort of close the door on a project. Yeah, it was really hard to close the door because fiction, I don't want to say it's my first love um, in terms of literature, but it's something that I'm really drawn to a lot. I love novels. I love short story collections. And that's a lot of kind of where my reading tends to lean. I really wanted to got, kind of go that route, but just just with the busyness of life and, and different things, it just became increasingly difficult to kind of find that headspace to really create this world that I wanted to create. So it's still there and kind of some aspects of that are still there, but it just came to a point where I had to kind of be honest with myself and say, okay, you know, <laughs> is this going to happen or is it not going to happen? And uh, when I kind of came to the realization that taking the form of a novel wasn't really kind of going in the direction that I wanted to go, I had to kind of, like I said, be honest with myself and just still stick with the desire to kind of get these same ideas out, but just through a different means and just through a different form. So now is it more of a memoir? Is it kind of a memoir, sort of cultural view hybrid? Yeah, it's kind of a hybrid. Um, you see that kind of differently over the last last few years, how just this genre of, of nonfiction and hybrid and um, kind of a mix of reporting and um, personal reflection and these things are, are kind of really getting readers' attention. Um, and it's really interesting. I, I, there's a lot of books that just continue to do that in interesting ways, like Hilton Alls is, you know, White Girls and things like that. And um, even ta Coates, how he has 
uh, with Between the World and Me, the way he explored um, just personal experience with a lot of just history. Uh, so, um, yeah, the more I be kind of just began to look into that, I realized that that's kind of what a lot of my writing has been up to this point. So I kind of just wanted to continue and uh, grow from there. How far along are you? Probably halfway. That's maybe, great. Maybe maybe a little maybe a little less maybe a little less, but that's a first draft though, so that can that can change. How do you write first drafts? Do you edit as you go, or you kind of do one big push through? Yeah, I'm I'm really really bad at just sitting down and just writing nonstop without continually editing myself um, throughout the entire process. You know, every writer has their own kind of way of doing things, and I find that I'm I'm so committed to my own way of doing it that to try to do it another way always fails. So I really edit myself really, really harshly going through the process. So that really makes for slower writing, unfortunately. Um, but it also makes it kind of more concise and makes every sentence kind of serve its own purpose. So yeah, it tends to be a lot more slow going because of that approach, but that's just kind of the way I work. And what's it been like to write about your kids? You know, fatherhood is something that has always been interesting to me, even before becoming a father. It's kind of weird to to even say that, but I mean, even as a teenager, a, you know, a punk kid at that who was getting into a lot of trouble, I always kind of looked forward to being a father one day, which again, is it's it's a strange thought because not a lot of people have that kind of a view. So even though I was super immature in a lot of different ways, I always knew that I wanted to one day reach a level of maturity where I could actually, you know, lead younger kids, you know, sons, daughters, whatever. Um, so it's something that I've always been interested in. And then becoming a father, um, I have four kids. Uh, they're all pretty much two years apart. They're eight, six, uh, four, and two. So I'm learning a lot. They teach me a lot every day about writing, about the about patience, about, you know, what it means to really take every decision that you make seriously because it's going to affect other people. So I see a lot of parallels um, between parenting and writing. So it, it's, it's, it's a journey, you know, and, and I'm just kind of just discovering more and more as I go how much I don't know about being a father, being a person, <laughs> just in general, you know, you know, the old, it seems like the older you grow, the more you realize what, how much you don't know, as opposed to just how much you know, and, and how much wisdom you have and experience and knowledge. It's, it's kind of opens up to your eyes to how big the world is and how little you actually uh, understand. Right. Yeah. That's fascinating. So um, you feel like it's had like an actual tangible impact on kind of your writing, your day-to-day -day writing life. I mean, I'm sure when yeah. I'm sure realistically it has, practically it has, but yeah, absolutely, and and especially in a practical sense because I mean, I'm 35 now. Um, if I if I didn't have kids, I would I would write all day and and stop to eat maybe, <laughs> and write all night and drink coffee and and you know that's pretty much what I would do. Um, but because I have kids, it it affects me a lot in a practical sense, and it makes it more challenging to be able to again have that concentration that it takes to write something that's good and meaningful, which is one of the reasons I had to kind of abandon um, a novel is because you need a lot of headspace, at least I did, in order to be able to uh, kind of get what you want down. Um, and writing in, in, in bursts, you know, for me at least, it didn't work in terms of the way I wanted to attack a novel. You know, I wanted to really pour myself into it and kind of live um, in that space you know, consistently without interruption. Um, and I couldn't really find that. 
once you kind of decided you wanted to pursue writing, is is this sort of where you were expecting or were hoping to end up? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think every writer every, every writer wants to be read and you know, essays and and and, and reviews and and cultural criticism online is definitely a way to do that, but at least for me there comes a point where I kind of, um, I don't always want to be writing about other people's work and there's nothing wrong with that. I think that criticism is, is an incredibly valuable thing and it's an art in and of itself. Um, and there are people that sustain incredible careers in, you know, film criticism and book criticism. And, and I think it's, it's beautiful. It's wonderful. But, uh, as for myself, um, it's one part of what I want to do. And I kind of came to a point where if I was going to write a book, if I was going to get, um, you know, my own ideas out there in the way that I wanted to, it was, it, it, that was only going to happen through my own book and, uh, and attacking it the way that I wanted to. I think that's a really good point. And I think especially, you know, so many good things have come of, it sounds so cheesy and old to say the internet age, but you know, the fact that you can kind yeah. of be putting stuff out constantly, but I think it also can sometimes create this sort of reactive cycle where like, you're not actually thinking about what like what ideas you want to be putting out it's like okay what ideas are out and how can I like respond to them yeah absolutely and I I was listening to uh to an interview um not too long ago with uh editor Chris Jackson who is uh Tani Hasi quotes his editor and um he's also editor for Eddie Wong and, and he's got a lot of great books under his belt he's just a fantastic editor um and he was talking about just the internet age and um the, the the digital age that we live in where it's just the 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 time of the hot take and and he was talking about the, the word to thought ratio and i thought that was super important because there's so many words out there that come out every single day on every issue you know um so whatever the pertinent issue or whatever the hot thing going on right now in the news or for the last week, there's just everybody, there's journalists and, and critics and just hundreds and thousands of people writing about the same thing um, and giving kind of their own perspective. Um, but it's something that you kind of like, you chew on for a few days, at least the writer, um, or maybe it's something that's kind of been in the back of your mind for a long time and you kind of get it out there and then it is what it is. But with a book, it's different because it's something that, um, you know, the structure of a book lends to just so much like I talked about, um, just editing and, you know, chopping and cutting where at, at the end of what you get with a book is you have this powerful thing that you hold in your hand that you've wrestled with, you know, the thoughts and ideas for so long. And it's not something that you kind of just wrote, um, over a week or a few weeks, you know, a few months, even a period of time, like you have, like you will maybe with maybe a longer essay, but it's something that's just powerful and concise and, and, and it has a, a more of a shelf life, you know, no pun intended. Mm-hmm. Um, and those ideas can just resonate for a really long time in one specific, uh, medium. And it's something you can hold in your hand as opposed to, you know, going online and finding an article or something, you know, it's just, it's a powerful tool that you can hand somebody. Right. That's not going to get buried by headlines immediately. Exactly. Exactly. Along that line, I did want to talk to you about, uh, not to get into making you do a hot take, but I do feel like this sort of season we're in right now has really affected a lot of people who do creative work and made them think about, you know, kind of their role in in the world. And I wonder if that's something that's on your mind right now or how that's manifesting, if it is. Yeah, absolutely. As as a Latino who's, who's a first-generation American, it, it affects me a great deal. You know, my mom, uh, my parents, both of them came, you know, came to this country like 
a lot of immigrants do with, you know, in search of opportunity, in search of a change, in search of, uh, you know, better things to, to, to expose their children to. Um, and when you see somebody um, threatening that in the way um, that, that that Donald Trump is, um, yeah, it's 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 infuriating, but it's also it can be scary for a lot of people because they don't know what tomorrow is going to hold. And I think every election has some of that uh, fear that comes with it because you don't know necessarily what's going to happen. You're used to the last four or eight years and kind of the way things have been going, but this is on another level. Um, this is on another level of of strange. Um, but you know, if you look at kind of the way that history has been going, especially even over the last few years, it shouldn't be a surprise, at least not completely. Does it give you a different sense of urgency about what you do or what you write about? I think it does. Uh, I think I, I think every, I think every writer worth, worth their, uh, worth their weight has a sense of urgency kind of to begin with, because you have all these ideas and things that you want to communicate, um, things that you see wrong with the world. Um, so I think being a writer kind of comes with already having a level of urgency, but this definitely increases it because it's, you see the effects, uh, you see a lot of tangible effects and you see, um, you know, violence and cruelty and, and, and the things that come with it. So yeah, it's going to definitely increase, especially writers of color that are, um, that have been writing against this sort of, you know, bigotry for, for years. Um, now it's kind of like even more, um, necessary to, to resist, Can you talk a little bit about that transition into music and then back out of it into writing? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so in my early twenties, um, you know, I, I was I was, you know, traveling and doing music with my group, and we got signed um, by Universal um, for a record deal, and we made a few albums and, and toured and all that. And while it was always something that I loved to do and I loved traveling, um, writing and be able to uh, just kind of get myself down on paper um in a broader sense was always really what I wanted to do but when I saw music was kind of uh taking off and kind of making uh making a path for for me um you know I jumped on that especially in my early 20s I wanted to travel and I wanted to do you know I wanted to see the world I wanted to have experiences and stuff so um it was kind of a no-brainer to really jump into to the music industry but after I, I got married and, and started to have started to have kids touring and traveling and, and, and being away really began to take its toll on just family life. And I didn't want to be gone for two weeks at a time or, you know, even three weeks at a time, even three or four days was, you know, difficult to do. So it was kind of time for me to make that move into do into doing what I really wanted to do kind of, from, you know, from the beginning, which was be a writer. So I just started to to write and just to concentrate on that more. And that became, you know, what it became. As just acts of self-expression how do those two experiences differ you know writing music and performing it live versus you know writing a piece and, and publishing it yeah I mean one thing that I love about um doing music and and being in a group specifically is that you're working with other minds and with other creative people and you're bouncing ideas off of one another so I really enjoyed that process and definitely you know doing shows and performing um, for big crowds and stuff is really exhilarating and it, and it's fun and you kind of get to see the reaction um, of an audience you know in real time so it differs obviously a lot from writing in that it's a more it's a personal process you're alone and you don't really get to see 
um, the reaction or how people engage with your work until much later, especially with the book, you know, much, much later. So they have their differences, but I think that they're both also similar in that you're, you're really having to dig deep in order to, to say something and to communicate something that's going to be worth someone's time, you know, whether reading or listening to. And, you know, I was talking about the, the thought to word ratio. Um, but with music, it's the same thing because it's such an oversaturated industry. Everybody's a singer. Everybody's a rapper. Everybody wants to be famous. Um, so there's that. And you're just you're competing with a lot of different people, a lot of artists. And in order to really get recognized or to see um, the effect that your work has on, on a broader, uh, broader number of people, it takes a lot of hard work um, and a lot of hustle and grind. Do you still uh, do any music? No, um, the other members of my group have are doing have done solo projects, and we've done kind of just little shows here and there. But for the most part, uh, I don't have time for it. So it's kind of the reverse now, where before I was doing music and didn't have time to really write what I wanted. Now it's kind of the other way around. I was reading back through some of your stuff, and I was really struck by the variety of things that you have written about. But I just also wonder yeah. if you feel like there are kind of ideas and themes that are universal that you keep coming back to, you know, that, that show up in something as different from talking, writing about skateboarding versus writing about books. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I have, I have a lot of thoughts on, I guess, a lot of things. And I think a, a writer or, or an artist in general is first and foremost, a, a curious person, you know, um, and we're curious about the world. We're curious about the way um, human behavior affects um, our world. Um, and so, yeah, you got to dig deep for those ideas. Um, but I think that you know, once you you know, once you're struck by an idea, and if it's a good one, you kind of spend time thinking about it, and you start you know, kind of putting together those thoughts and uh, and asking yourself how you feel about something. So, as far as universal things. You know, it's funny because it always comes back to, to fatherhood and being a parent. Um, you know, that skateboarding article that you reference, it's it's about, you know, passing my love of skateboarding down to my sons. You know, so I think that's kind of been in the back of my mind, something that's always been with me is just this aspect of fatherhood and my passion for just for sons um, and, 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 and daughters, you know, and the next generation and what we're doing to to influence them to create a better world. Because you know, being a father is, has political ramifications, you know, you know, you have societies that don't have fathers and they turn out one way and you have societies that do have fathers and you see kind of the positive impacts that they have. So in terms of universal themes, you know, just this idea of what it means to be a parent, uh, not just a father, just, you know, a parent in general, you know, motherhood has its own special uh, <laughs> complications, you know, and, um, I would say that's kind of the one of the things that I come back to the most, um, and it's just something that's that's super meaningful to me. And and when I think about all that it entails, um, so many things, you know, and so many ideas stem from that. Where do you think that comes from with you? I mean, you said you know it was from even before you had kids, you knew you wanted to be a father. How did that become such a compelling idea? Yeah, I think I don't know that I can answer that, you know, completely. Honestly, but I would say that, you know, maybe growing up without a father is something that definitely, um, even subconsciously, um, affected that side of me wanting to be a father someday and wanting to kind of not repeat certain mistakes and not go down a certain path. Because I saw that it, the way that it affected myself, you know, growing up with a single mother, um, raising three kids on her own, I saw 
you know, just that void that was there. And even as a teenager, I didn't think that I was really affected so much by my father not being there. And it, honestly, it wasn't even until I got married and had and started having kids that I realized, wow, there's there are things that I was never taught, mm-hmm. you know. And it's and it's real. It's strange to admit that, but it, it's it's a reality. Like. I grew up, you know, just trying to act tough and, and thinking that, oh, you know, my mom was strong enough to, to play the role of both parents. But no, even though she did an incredible job, you know, it wasn't until much later that I realized, wow, like, how do I do, how do I, you know, how do I function in this relationship? You know, I wasn't taught how, for example, to treat a woman. And, you know, obviously the, the obvious things of, you know, respect and, 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 and those kinds of things are something that are just innately human. You would think that you just, as you grow, you know, to, te- to treat people with respect and to honor other people. But um, there was just certain aspects to those things um, that I wasn't taught. Sure. So, yeah, so they didn't affect me. And, and I didn't really realize the scars that I had until, you know, being in my 30s, which is super, super weird. But uh, but that's just kind of the reality of it. No, I think that makes sense. I mean, my, you know, my parents divorced when I was pretty young and and my mom and I have a you know, a great relationship, but certainly a complicated relationship because of that. I think being a kid in a scenario like that, you have to act different ages at different times, kind of. Yeah. And it, and it's it's hard to work through. Definitely. Definitely. And I was the oldest. Um, so that had added pressure. I had to act like I was the husband right. and the big brother. And, um, you know, I, I remember being a teenager and my mom, my mom's beautiful. Like she's a really pretty lady. And I remember being uh, in high school and I would see, you know, men look at my mom and I would grill them. I mean, I'm 14, 15 years old, you know, grilling grown men and, you know, saying things to them just because I saw them, (laughs) you know, admiring my mom. And it was just like, that stuff affected me. I was like, damn, but, but, uh, yeah, that was kind of random, but (laughs) just a fun fact. Another thing that I loved uh, looking through some of your stuff was how clearly impactful books have been on your life at certain points in time. And I wondered, I mean, I wondered a few things about that, one of which was just kind of like, if you still get those feelings, like I feel I was trying to remember the last time that I felt that sort of moved by a book. And I wondered if it was something that like youth is sort of just has its own claim on. and, And I thought that maybe you would have some feelings about that. Yeah, to be honest, I really didn't start reading until probably after high school. I, I was a really late bloomer when it came to books. I wasn't I wasn't a particularly good student. Um, I always liked to write. I always liked to be creative. But, I, you know, it wasn't until after high school that I could actually consistently finish books. You know, I'd read, you know, chapters and, you know, excerpts of so many books. But um, most of them didn't really have an effect on me until much later. Um, so I think coming into reading a little bit later, I'm not sure exactly what the effect was, but I know that it had one because I think I was able to wrestle with ideas with a different level of maturity, at least personally, um, than I would have, you know, otherwise. So, yeah, I mean, uh, uh, yeah, I forgot what the question was. But <laughs> How do you approach reading while you're writing, you know, when you're in the thick of a project like Rap Dads? I feel like sometimes my style can get like especially porous if I'm writing and reading at the same time and I have to be really careful right. about, you know, keeping the boundaries. Yeah, that's that's interesting because I was thinking about that actually the other day. Um I'm I'm doing my best to kind of stay away from things that 
are similar to what I'm trying to do. Um, and I know that other people might kind of work in a different different way where if you're enveloped in a project, you kind of want to um, read maybe along those lines. But I'm trying my best to not be influenced too much um, by kind of what is going on with at least some of the ideas that I'm trying to work through. Um, and I know I, I can't avoid that completely, but um, so I'm trying to, you know, I'm trying to just basically read more fiction and um, stay stay away from nonfiction a little bit. Um, again, not entirely, but um, just kind of read about I, one. I mean, one of the things that I really love is literature and translation. And that's something that um, probably 80 percent of my uh, reviews our, our literature and translation. Um, I'm kind of the only one at NPR that's that's mostly on that beat. Um, so aside from essays and stuff uh, for NPR books, um, yeah, the majority of my of my reviews are are literature and translation, and and I would say that's as far as my reading goes. That's what I gravitate towards the most because I'm just interested in in voices um, that are from other places, um, whether it be Latin America or or different parts of Europe or Asia. Um, I'm just really um, intrigued by just different ideas than, than the ones that I kind of come across on a daily basis, you know, through reading on the Internet and and conversations like I just love to get those different um, those different worldviews. What are you reading right now? Um, I just finished. Actually, I just finished Juan Gabriel Vasquez, a book called Reputations. Mm-hmm. Um I just finished. I just read it for a second time, actually, uh, which I probably shouldn't do because I need to read other things. But I just loved it so much that I actually finished it um, a couple months ago and, and picked it up again to read it. Um, I'm not entirely sure why. I think it was just sitting there and I just started and didn't put it down. It's really interesting about the works in translation because I've also always been fascinated by just the act of translation. And like yeah. I find the communication of those ideas so deeply from one language to another just completely mind-blowing yeah absolutely i think that's that's one of the most challenging roles um and functions in is in literature is being a translator um because like you mentioned i mean and there's so many different dialects i mean you could be translating an author from mexico or translating an author from peru and and there's certain language that is not going to translate um in english you know certain verbiage or whether it be slang or just uh, you know, street talk that that even differs from one community to the next in the same city or country. So it's that's a really, really challenging position. I don't envy, you know, the role that that translators have. I think that it's it's really incredible. And, and it takes a lot of study and it takes a lot of training to be able to kind of nail down those those right words and to get those phrases as close to what the author intended as possible. Do you read and write in Spanish ever? No, I don't write, and I very, very rarely read in Spanish. So um, when a novel is coming out that I've been looking forward to, like, for example, there's this author named Samantha Schweblin, um, who's an incredible writer, and I'm I'm so excited that she's finally being translated uh, to English. Um, and she's a really, really great writer that I'm really excited about. So I wish that my, my, my Spanish reading was, was at, a, at a level that I needed to be in order to really engage with her or her stories in the ways that I want to, but... I haven't been able to yet, aside from, you know, a couple of stories here and there that I've read in Spanish. How do you find those writers? I mean, you Social probably media, get sent a lot of times. stuff, a lot of stuff too, I imagine. Yeah, I, yeah I do get sent a lot of stuff and, and there's a lot of great publishers out there like Melville, Melville House and New Directions that publish a lot of uh, literature and translation, if not, you know, entirely uh, literature translation. So I would say 
probably the majority comes from that or just seeing things on on social media you know one writer that i follow will reference another writer that they admire and i'll check them out and be drawn or not to it. That brings up, I wanted to ask you, because you tweet pretty regularly, or at least more regularly than me, which is kind of so my benchmark <laughs> is maybe a little low. Um, but but I wonder um, if you could talk about how you see Twitter, you know, do you kind of consider it another medium or another place to kind of get stuff out there? Or does it does it stress you out like it stresses me out about presenting yourself and then trying to do it so quickly? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it's it, like we were talking about before about how, um, you know, with music and, and, and shows like you get to see an audience's reaction to what you're, you know, presenting immediately. And that's um, nothing, you know, nothing is more true to that than, than, than social media, especially Twitter, where everything you say can have an automatic reaction, uh, good or bad. And so to see kind of the way that uh, that reaction can turn into something that you didn't even intend it to you know, can be can be crazy. But uh, on the other side of that, it's also super positive because you can kind of see that immediate again, come going back to that, that immediate reaction um, that people have to your work, whether they agree or disagree. I mean, I'll say something about a writer and, and immediately somebody will um, either express, you know, their agreement or, you know, basically say that what I said was was dumb, you know, so I kind of love that. I, I don't tweet as much as I as as much as I think about tweeting, <laughs> because because uh, you know so many of my tweets I I delete or don't send. You know my draft is filled with a whole bunch of you know stupid things that I'll never say, but I keep them there. You know in case I ever you know had like too much whiskey and I like don't care. So like. I've, yeah, defin- like, I've definitely like spent like an and not insignificant amount of time composing a tweet and just almost immediately decide that I'm not going to publish it, but just keep going with it. And then you're like, yeah, no, no, I'm not doing I know. Delete this. Yeah, exactly. Uh, what about uh the the writing process? Do you want to talk about uh what are your ideal writing conditions? My ideal writing conditions are just by myself in a room. Um with no natural light, just dark, you know, listening to something really, really depressing. No, not really. <laughs> um, but, I, but I have to be super disciplined in kind of the way that I structure my day because I can't write the book all day as much as I want to. I have other things that I have to work on. So I usually get up around five in the morning and try to write for an hour and a half before my kids wake up and I got to start um, helping with lunches and breakfast, you know, and doing all those things to get them out of the door. Um, so. And I haven't always been like that because I'm not really a disciplined person when it comes to my writing. Um, But because I'm working on a book and because it requires so much and there's so many words and so little time, um, I have to be um, really disciplined uh, and mindful about the way that I structure my day. So so most mornings, at least weekday mornings, I try to get up at about five in the morning um, while it's still a little dark, while I can have... Um, at least an hour and a half to be able to, you know, really, really dive in. That's not necessarily an ideal condition, but that's my reality because another thing that I've learned as I've gotten older is I don't have as much energy to write at night as I used to. Like in my 20s, like, oh, it'd be amazing. Like I just come home from from work or from whatever I was doing and I can just write and be creative and the juices are flowing at night and it's wonderful. And I get that every now and then. But by the time I worked all day, come home, you know, do dinner, spend time with my wife, 
do all those things, you know, by then it's like 10, 11 o'clock and I'm, I'm spent. Like I don't have the energy and the mental capacity to be able to like write something worth anyone caring about most times, <laughs> you know? So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's super difficult and it's a learning process. I haven't completely figured it out yet. Um, but that's kind of what I'm working towards is, is, is being able to do that. I wish I could say I'm going to take, you know, five days off and disappear um, and just work, but it's just not practical. So yeah, that's something that I got to be mindful of every day. Cause I think about writing all day, you know, when I'm not writing, I'm, I'm thinking about ideas that I want to get out. But at the end of the day, when it's time, you know, when I have some time to get those ideas out, I don't have the stamina, <laughs> the, st- the mental stamina to be able to do it the way I want. So, so are you writing yeah. at home all day? No, no, I, um, I, I share an office um, with some people, um, some art directors and other creatives. We share space. Um, so throughout the day, I'm writing, whether it be essays or criticism, or, or sometimes I, I take 30 minutes and, you know, pick and prod at the book a little bit. Um, but for the most part, I'm working on just like other projects. Sometimes, though, when I have big projects, I really am grateful for the other things that take my attention yeah. away from them for a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Because... Uh, you know, I could be, you know, working in an office someplace that that doesn't allow me to be creative. And I've done that before. And it's it's and people have to do that. I mean, mm-hmm. there's writers that have, you know, you, you're working in a sales job or you're a receptionist or you're you're doing whatever throughout the day and kind of being creative when you can um, in those bursts, you know, working on something that towards something larger. And those are great things too. But not everybody can do necessarily what they love. I mean, not everybody can you know, has that luxury to be able to work on, on creative stuff all day. So I'm grateful that I get some of that. I, you know, it's definitely not completely where I want to be, but, I'm, but that's what I'm working towards. How much of the book did you have to write to sell it? I had like a 60-page proposal with right. some sample chapters and, and basically a breakdown of what the book is going to do. Do the sample um, chapters terms, look like, um, do they still look the same as they did in the proposal? No, no, <laughs> not at all. Not at all. Um, they don't because, you know, once I got an agent, um, you know, Monica, she's she's excellent and she worked with me. We worked on the proposal for probably about six or seven months to kind of get it to a place where we were both happy with it. And we had the editors in mind that we wanted. And finally, uh, you know, when it got picked up, you know, then I've had conversations with the editor um, and and uh, getting to know each other um, and talking through some of the ideas. And, and and I'm grateful for that because getting other people's feedback that haven't lived with it for the last, you know, six or seven months, at least in, in terms of getting it to the stage where it was um, at the time that I uh, that I sold it, it has been valuable because it's it's opened my eyes to just different angles and different things that I want to get down and, and, and ways that I want to reshape it to kind of achieve what I wanted to do. How has that whole process been for you just in terms of the lifespan of the project? I definitely, you know, working on book proposals have had that feeling of like, I had no idea this was going to be going on so long. <laughs> and I feel like now I'm going to like bring that to the next project and be totally okay with it. But kind of, I wasn't, you know, when you're not like aware of sort of the whole scope of it, I feel like there are times where you can just be like, this has to be broken. Like, how am I still doing this? Yeah. Yeah. That's true. Because like if, when you're working on it for so long, you're like, why am I not happy with this yet? Right. Why am I still, why am I still rewriting the same sentence 17 times on a freaking proposal? Like this is 
this is dumb. <laughs> so you start to really question yourself. And I think that you have to have faith that what you're, what you're saying has value, because if it has value to you, it's going to have value for somebody else. It just comes down to just getting the words right. As, as, as simple as that sounds, um, you have the idea, you, you realize that this idea is going to be in, important i hate to use that word because it sounds it's it's too big of a word i guess but um at least that it's going to mean something for someone else um and hopefully more than you know your family and your friends um <laughs> you know so yeah it gets it gets difficult when you're working on it for a long time and you don't see it kind of taking shape or at least you know going at the pace that you want it to go and getting you know, to that place where you want it to be. So that can be difficult, but it just takes time. It's just, it's, it's like working a muscle. Um, and that muscle just gets stronger and stronger. The more that you revise, the more that you edit yourself, the more that you question whether what you're saying, um, is, 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 is really valid. What was the process like of getting an editor? Can you talk about assessing that relationship and getting to know the person who would be working on the book with you? Yeah, uh, we're still early um, in the stages of, of kind of getting to know each other. Uh, my editor is Todd Hunter um, from Atria Books. Yeah, I mean, that process was basically just once we got the proposal in the shape that we wanted it to be, we sent it to a few editors that we had in mind that we felt would, would really appreciate the book. And and my agent, Monica, had spoken um, to Todd Hunter uh, in person and kind of shared the idea. And he was one of the one of the editors that we were really interested in. And when she shared the idea with him um, in person, he was super excited about it and he was kind of waiting to, to get it. So that, you know, that's, that's a good thing. And it's an, an encouraging thing when you're uh, at least, at the, you know, when I was at the stage that I was to have somebody, you know, expectant and waiting to kind of get that email. Um, but it's also, you know, it's the added pressure because you're like, okay, someone is actually going to pay attention. So you know, that made me try to step it up um, even more. And, you know, we got rejections and, you know, and those kinds of things. And, and, and that's good, too, because, you know, it points out that this isn't going to be perfect. And it's also not going to be for every single editor. So for the ones, you know, that didn't like it, it wasn't the project for them. But I'm thankful that it landed in the editor and the hands of the editor that we really, really wanted. Do you listen to music while you write? Not music with words. If right. anything, it has to be instrumental. So, like, I like things like Mogwai and the album Leaf and stuff like that that has um, kind of a, almost like an eerie tone. Yeah, I kind of like weird, kind of weird sounds for some reason when I'm writing. Like, and I don't know why. I don't know what that says about me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because um, I, I like to smile. Um, but when I'm writing, for some reason, I like kind of that weird, kind of atmospheric music i think it just adds in some way that i don't necessarily understand to what you're trying to communicate because i think you tap into certain and again this is this is not science (laughs) (laughs) i have no idea if what i'm saying is true but i think it like certain music and certain sounds it seems like they tap into certain levels of your brain that brings out certain thoughts or certain ideas or at least helps you communicate things that are already there um in ways that i want you know, to get them out. Yeah. I think there's also a lot to be said just for the kind of conditioned response aspect of it. Like, well, this is the music that I put on. This is the type of sound that that I'm used to. And then when it comes on, something in me figures out that it's time to write. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I never thought about that. I think I agree. What do you do when you don't want to write? Yeah, that's interesting, too, because I think that 
if you only work when you're inspired, like you're really not going to get anything done because you have to be able to work through those things just like any job. So I think that writers have to treat writing and, and treat creative work in general in the same way. You push through that and maybe your first few sentences or paragraphs or, or, or whatever are going to suck because you're not inspired, but at least you're getting something down. And I think that you start to, you know, you know, I think you kind of open the floodgates and there's an Ernest Hemingway quote. I'm going to butcher this, but he talks about stopping writing when you know kind of where you're going next. No, I know exactly what you mean. And I keep that yeah. in myself as well. Yeah. It's super important because, you know, say I'm writing from 5 a.m. to 6.30. Once I stop at 6.30, you know, I should be at the point where I can continue, but I'm going to stop where I, when I know where this is going. Because, because if I don't, I'm going to sit down later that day or that night or the next day, and I'm going to be kind of stuck at square one, just rereading everything that I've already written and kind of have nowhere to go from there. I know what you mean. And it makes me think, you know, what you had said before about it being a muscle. I think that approach to me has the same sort of idea. You know, if I leave it when I, when I don't know what to to do next, yeah. then the decision to come back to it is kind of like the decision to not go to the gym when you already haven't been to the gym for like two weeks. It's just <laughs> kind of like, well, I mean, there's yeah. nothing really going on there. Um, yeah, yeah. If there's something like pulling you, you know, if there's like something to look forward to, I think that it does make a big difference. Yeah, because and and so if you're writing in the morning and you're going to come back to it later, you can be thinking about that you know, in the time being and, and revising those ideas, revising those, those thoughts in your mind. So when you sit down, you know, they're even more fully formed because you've kind of lived with them for, uh, for a greater amount of time. What does creative satisfaction look like to you right now? I don't know that I, I, I'm the type of writer that wants to just write books and only books for as long as I can work. I think that I have so many different interests, um, whether they be film um, or even music or, you know, in books and stuff that, um, I want to be able to develop those ideas further and have the time and space, um, to kind of get those different ideas out there in different mediums and in different formats. So I think that what creative satisfaction to me looks like is being able to really dig into the ideas that I have and have other people make them better. And not just not just an editor, but, you know, a cinematographer or, or a photographer or, or a musician, you know, or whatever. That's one thing that I really miss is even though I'm kind of, I would say I'm definitely an introvert and, and a loner kind of at heart. I also really, really love working um, with other people that are kind of on my same, same wa wavelength and have some similar ideas, you know, about the world and about what they want to contribute creatively. So when I get to do projects with people like that, like to me, there's nothing more fulfilling. So as much as I love kind of sitting in front of the computer and just working and just plugging away, I equally love the collaboration that comes with, you know, being in, you know, say a writer's room, you know, with other people and, and just really exchanging ideas. Because especially, you know, if, with humor, you, you, you might have a joke that you think is funny, but if you're reading it to other people and they aren't laughing, it's not funny. So if you, when you're in a, in a writer's room um, and everybody's just like cracking up at something, that's super exhilarating. And you know that that's going to really translate. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I have always been really curious about writers' rooms, just in a sort of detached sociological kind of way. Like, I don't think yeah. that I want to do it, but I, yeah, I yeah. am really curious about that experience because it's so different from the traditional writing experience. Yeah, because I think writers, like, are so vain. Like, we think, like, <laughs> yeah. a lot of the times, like, we think that everything that we're writing is, like, so dope and, like, oh, my God. 
this is the greatest idea. And then like you read that to someone else and you might not get the reaction that you wanted because it wasn't really that dope. So to have that instant feedback from other people, um, I think is, is, is super interesting to me. And, and I really, I thrive off of that. I really love it and I definitely miss it. So I think that once I finish this book project, I'll uh, hopefully um, be able to kind of find a project where I can dive into something like that again. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today on our website, wmfapodcast.com. You can email us at hello at wmfapodcast.com and find us on Twitter and Instagram at wmfapodcast. Download and subscribe to the show on iTunes. Reviews are greatly appreciated. Or visit our website for more options. The WMFA logo was created by Unsold Studio, and our theme music is Jazz Dancer by Double Winter. Find them at doublewinter.bandcamp.com. WMFA is made in Detroit by Courtney Ballastier, LLC.